0: Live from the Pacific Northwest, it's Portland Story Theatre's Urban Tellers. Real, true stories. May the narrative be with you. My mom's name was Rita, Margarita Gillespie. But everyone called her Rita. She died in 1980 when she was 46 and I was 18. And two weeks after she died, my dad, in a drunken rage, he threw me out. My older sister, Pauline, she said, oh, you know, he's just deranged with grief. He'll bring you back. Just give him a little bit of time. So I went and stayed at my mate's house and waited for him to calm down. But he didn't. Instead, he changed all the locks. <laughs> wow. You know, it was, really, it was really hard, but I decided that Three months earlier, I'd started my nurses' training in Walton Hospital in Liverpool, and that was lucky for me. And it was the same hospital that my mum had started her nurse training when she was 18. But my mum, she'd come all the way from Ireland, from a little town called Clara in County Offaly. They call it the belly button of Ireland. (laughs) Cos it's slap bang in the middle. My mum had big dreams. She wanted to get her RN and travel the world and emigrate to America. But she met my me dad. He was a patient on her ward. He was dead handsome, like Maria Lanza, she said. <laughs> they fell madly in love, got married, and had six kids back to back to back. <laughs> so she never left Liverpool, never mind go to America. It was my mum's dreams that inspired my dreams to go and get my nursing and travel the world like she didn't get to do. And she was there right behind me, supporting me, telling me I could do it, even though I was meant to not be very bright, but good with me hands. Hmm. Anyway, the first step in that journey was me getting a room in the nurse's residence, like my mum had done when she came from Ireland. And that room, it gave me the freedom not to have to go back home and deal with my dad and his grief and his drinking. I felt free. I'll never forget the day that I went back to our house to get me things. We didn't have a car and we didn't know anyone round our way with a car. My eldest sister Kathleen had recently got married and her husband Eric, he had a little bright red Mini Cooper. So he said he'd help me. So we went to our house, and Pauline, my elder sister, had given me a key, and she made sure it was a Sunday afternoon and nobody was home, least of all me dad. Anyway, Erica helped me, and we stuffed all my whirly belongings, and they fit into three big black bin bags. God love me. And even though it was so sad and it was really hard, Eric and I, well, we pissed ourselves laughing, shoving those big black bags into his (laughs) tiny little Mini Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) He was great. He sat outside in his car having a ciggy while I went back inside. I wanted to say one last goodbye to the house and to me mum. But I stood outside her bedroom for the longest time, trying to pluck up the courage to go in. Eventually, when I was in there, I was dead surprised that it was in pitch black, so dark. My dad had drawn the curtains. And then I remembered Pauline telling me that my dad, he came home every night from the pub and he crashed out on the couch because it was just too painful to go up and be in that room without her. As much as he pissed me off, I could understand that. And her room was exactly the way it was the last time I saw it. Her chest of drawers, and it had all her knickknacks on it, her makeup, and all her little religious icons. She had her prayer books and her mass cards and her novenas. We were Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and she had these little things. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of them, but they're called scapulas. Go figure. And they're little pieces of cloth from saints. Clothes and they put them in these little plastic things on string. And they put, you know, my mum had them all round her neck and plastered to her chest. But God love her, they didn't do her any good, did they? (laughs) Take note. (laughs) And on the back of the door was her favourite flowery nightie in her sky blue dressing gown and the smell of her honeysuckle talc it was still in there. It was just too much for me. So I climbed up onto her bed from a lovely pink eider down that it was her favorite from Marks and Spencers, and I gathered up all her pillows, and I squeezed onto them like I hadn't been able to squeeze onto her. Before long, I was just sobbing and sobbing. And I was able to shout at the pillows like I hadn't been able to shout at her. Why, Mum? Why? You see, you have to understand that the summer before she got sick, she came to us kids and she said she was done with me dad's drinking. She said she just couldn't give him another chance and that she was going to divorce him. Well, I was way through with me dad's drinking and I wanted to divorce him. But I didn't quite believe she was gonna do it because she'd said it so many times before, you know? And the others didn't want it. They said, you know, when my mum and dad should be together. They love one another. I thought that was a load of bullshit, myself. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but anyway, she did it. She followed through. And so what happened was that she connected with me because I was the only one who was behind her. So we became best mates, me and my mum. We went everywhere together. We did everything. I could talk to her about things. Excuse me. We talked to, to her. <laughs> we, I was able to talk to her about the things I couldn't talk to anybody about, like sex and getting pregnant and all those kind of things that 17 is really cool to be able to talk to your mum about. And my mates would come over and they'd say, God, your mum's amazing. And I'd be like, Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was brilliant, until a few months later, I'd come home, I'd been out with my mates drinking, and I came in, rolled into the house, and I went in the bathroom, and on the way out, I could hear this snoring. And I'm like, that sounds like a man snoring. And I thought, no, there's no way me mum to have a boyfriend, that's completely ridiculous. And then it hit me like a fucking ton of bricks. It was me dad. It was me dad in me mum's bedroom snoring. I was gobsmacked. The next day, when I confronted her about it, she said to me that he'd changed, like really changed, that this time it was different. I just thought that was bollocks. But the others, they were convinced as well, me Nan, cause see, he'd gone to me Nana's house, which was his mum, and she'd kicked him up the arse because he got thrown out from me mum. So he stopped drinking, he stopped smoking, he even lost weight. There was nothing I could do. So I blackmailed her. I said to her, you know what, mum? You have to choose, it's him or me. If he stays, I go. And she said to me, you're too young to leave, Julie." And I said, well, I'm going. And she said, you can't go, you're only, you're only 17. You can only leave home when you're 18, you're not legal. So I was fucking way pissed off with them both. So I fueled that rage with alcohol, the sex pistols and nightclubs. God save the queen. She ain't no human being. We could say that about Donald Trump, but that's another story. What happened was that she got sick, like hospital sick. She had to go and have tests and tests and tests. And then one night, my dad came home. She'd had the operation and he came home from the hospital and I'm like, so what's going on? And he said, oh, she's going to be fine, whatever it was. I can't remember something they said and it was going to be fine. And so that night I overheard him on the phone in the parlor and he had the door shut. And he was on the phone to my Auntie Bernadette, my mum's younger sister in Ireland. And he was telling her that my mum had cancer, that she had three months to live, three fucking months to live. They'd not told me. They never told her. And the thing about that day was that my first day in nursing school, I started that day. And I was gonna be there for three months. You do like a three months you know, introduction and you go to school and then at the end of the three months, they put you on a ward for 10 weeks and then you go back to school and into hospital. You didn't go to university like you do now. You were basically slave labor, God love us. But it was so intense and in the school, I, I realized that I had to do something, like something snapped in me. So I stopped going out with all my mates and I stopped drinking and I focused on school Because God loved me, I thought that, well, if I learn everything there is to learn, I can bring it home and I can help me more. At first, I used to, you know, make a laugh. I had all these funny stories because I was always doing the wrong thing, giving the wrong pill to the wrong patient and (laughs) dropping things and dropping people. And my mum loved it, she had a great sense of humour. And at first it felt so lovely to be able to make her laugh, you know, because it was just so sad. And then eventually she kind of didn't laugh and she started to sleep a lot and they gave her morphine. And, and I would practise my making bed, you know, the bed with the nurse's corners and fixing their pillows. And, and then I graduated to giving her mouth care and giving her bed baths. And she just got so skinny and tiny. She didn't talk anymore. She would just lie there sleeping. So I would sit with her for hours and I would have these imaginary conversations with her, you know, asking her what it would be like when she died. What would I do without her? I had millions of questions, millions of questions. And the thing is in nursing school, that was the one thing they wasn't teaching me was how to talk to my mum about dying. I never did get to talk to her. She died without me ever asking her. She died without me ever telling her how much I loved her, how much she inspired me, how much I was gonna miss her. The next morning, I had to go. Oh, that's right. I heard Eric's car on going. He was in the car beeping his horn. And I realized, oh God, I better get out the house and go before my dad came back. So I stumbled out wipe my face with Kleenex, and I got into Eric's car, and we didn't say a word to one another. We just drove away in silence, and I didn't even look back. And we get to the nurse's residence, and you should have seen it. It was this huge, big building, like 1901 or something, and it used to be a TB hospital, and the grounds of the hospital were grass and meadows and trees, and it was just amazing. Whereas our street it was just concrete, brick and grey. There wasn't even a blade of grass or a weed growing between the pavements. It was that bad. But this was gorgeous and green, and he had my own room. I had a sink and a bed, and I had a desk and a chair, and I had wardrobes. And there was a big window that just looked out over the meadows and the flowers. And then I remembered something my mum used to say to us when she wanted to get rid of us kids and my dad. She'd say she was leaving, you know, she'd tease us. And then I'd say, oh, one, but you'd miss us, she'd be lonely. And she'd go, no, Jilly, if I'm lonely, I'll have peace. <laughs> and I looked around and thought, well, I'm gonna have peace here, it's beautiful. But I'm gonna be really, really lonely. The next morning, I'm all dressed up in my nurse's uniform, ready to start my first day on my first ward, E-ward. It was a 42-bedded female ward. Most of the women had heart conditions, or they were dying of cancer, or they'd had strokes. And I just stood there, immobilized, thinking, I'll never go in there, I'll never be able to do it. I had on my white starched nurse's uniform and a green belt with the little silver buckle and he had green epaulets on my shoulders. I tell you, I felt as green as those epaulets I did. And he had a navy blue cloak on, and it had red lining that was soft, and straps that criss-cross your chest. You've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and he had one of those little upside-down watches. And all my long, auburn hair, which I had back then, was all jammed up in a little bun beneath this little white paper hat but I couldn't move. <laughs> I locked the part, but I didn't think I'd be able to do the part. You know what I mean? You've been there, right? <laughs> and then I heard her voice, her beautiful, soft Irish accent. It was the last thing she said to me before she died. She said, I should love. If you take care of all your patients like you're taking care of me, you'll make a fabulous nurse, should you will. So I took a big breath, and I stood tall and stuck out my chin, shoulders back, and pushed those big doors open to e and I stepped into my future. I stepped out into the future. And here I am, 35 years later. I never married, I never had kids. I travelled the world, and I've lived on three continents. I gave up nursing two years ago, but my mum, She's been with me every step of the way. She's still with me. She's here with us tonight.